This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. Welcome to episode two of the Moranalytics podcast for Monday, February 26th. Coming up on today's pod, I interview Buffalo News journalist Tim Graham, who also moonlights by having his own weekly radio sports talk show. And if that wasn't enough, also teaches a college journalism class. I'm also joined by Tone Pucks for our weekly Pat with Puck segment, where we're talking quarterbacks, Yankees Red Sox rivalry, and plenty of other rubbish. Before I wrap up this week's pod with the terrible tweets award to the most pessimistic Bills fan ever, MVP to the movie that is dominating the pop culture world, and LVP to a NFL Hall of Fame former general manager. Before going any further, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank everyone who tuned into the debut last week and for all the support and all the encouraging words, especially ESPN's Josina Anderson and Adam Schefter for giving me much appreciated retweets on Twitter. Hell yeah, Adam Schefter retweeted the Moranalytics podcast on Twitter last week. One quick programming note, the Moranalytics podcast is going twice weekly in just two weeks, starting March 12th, and there'll be episodes every Monday and every Thursday from that point going forward. I'm aiming to have each podcast run roughly an hour with Monday podcasts geared more towards sports, while Thursday shows will be a little more geared towards pop culture. Of course, I'll have interviews with people from all walks of life on these pods, so stay tuned for more details. As for today with this Tim Graham interview, I didn't ask him a single question about the Buffalo Bills or Sabres. That's no accident either. Tim's one of the most accomplished and respected writers in the country, and there's more than enough outlets to go get your Bills and Sabres fix, including this one, because I'm talking Bills and Sabres with uh, Tone Pucks in a little while. So instead, I aim to get Tim's perspective on a lot of different things. He tells great stories about the bullshit that goes on with covering professional boxing and how Sugar Ray Leonard's promotional team once tried to get him banned from covering events at the arena and get him fired from the Buffalo News. Tim talks about unfulfilled feelings and ambitions while he was working for ESPN And he talks about his return to the Buffalo News and what it meant to him to have written a life-altering story for a former NFL football player who's beloved in Buffalo. It literally changed the guy's life. We talk about plenty more during a chat that lasted for 
about an hour. So here's that interview with Tim. And then after that, I'll jump right into some Pat with Pucks. All right, my guest is Buffalo News award-winning journalist who also has his own weekly radio talk show. And if that wasn't enough, also teaches a journalism class at Kenesha's College because apparently being an award-winning journalist and a radio guy isn't enough. Tim Graham joins me by phone. And Tim, after what I said, just calling you Tim Graham of the Buffalo News, it feels like I'm almost selling you a little bit short. (laughs) Well, the idea of award-winning is kind of funny because if you're in the business long enough, let's say you work for a newspaper for five years, if you haven't won an award yet, uh, you're probably in trouble. So, yeah, I think we're all award-winning, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it sounds great, and that'll be the first line in my obituary, probably, <laughs> that I won. That I was an award-winning reporter with the Buffalo News. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, well, thanks for having me on. I, I've been looking forward to it. And by the way, right now, when I think of Tim Graham, I think of the guy who tweeted enough about Elmo's that over Christmas break, I got to go back home to Buffalo and I went there with my wife, and I had some of the best Cajun barbecue wings I've ever had in my life, although I did screw up, and I didn't get the double-dipped, but your recommendation is what got me there, and man, it was amazing. Yeah, they are great, and super underrated, and so I always try to give them as much attention as I can, and they're starting to catch up with the big boys. They get mentioned uh, in all the different contests, uh, the different polls around town. Now, they don't enter uh, a lot of stuff. They don't go to wing fests and all that, so um, it's all by word of mouth and, uh, yeah, it's a great, and it's a great spot too, because it's a, it, it would constitute a dive bar in terms of its look and feel. Uh, but the food is, uh, nowhere near oh, the food great. is, uh, the food is on par with, uh, with any, uh, any wing joint, uh, in Western New York. Oh, and by the way, since we're plugging it, mm-hmm. we're plugging it. Also probably the most overlooked part about Elmo's is. Every is their draft beer because they don't have a large selection. They only have, I think, five taps. But their refrigerator is right behind the wall where the taps are. So they don't have lines. So every pour you get at Elmo's is like straight from the keg. And it's always great because they never have lines to clean. Now they do clean those lines, but they're like a foot long. So uh, anyways, that's my favorite part about <laughs> nice. Elmo's. You know, I, I don't, the- I don't. I don't eat every time I'm at Elmo's, but I do drink every time I'm at Elmo's. <laughs> I, and I was the opposite. I, I've only been there once. I ate. I didn't drink. But now that you told me that, I got to make sure next time that I do. So listen, everyone knows Tim Graham is a football writer. Many also remember you from your time covering the Sabres, what feels like many years ago, I'm sure. I first it got does. to know you. I first got to know you on the boxing scene in Buffalo because, because boxing is, or at least it was, one of my first true loves with sports. So that's where I want to start. And of course, with that, that means I want to talk a little bit about uh, Baby Joe Macy and the Baby Joe Macy era. To me, it was just fascinating. It was like that ultimate what-if era. How much of Baby Joe Macy do you think was hype because his father and his family and his staff were so good at selling him as a fighter? And how much of it do you think was because he was just a legitimately good fighter? Well, that's a great question, Pat. Uh, 
and one that I haven't thought about for a while. So my answer might ramble for a little bit until I get to a point where I'm comfortable with my answer, but let's talk it out. Okay. I think that when I moved to Buffalo in January of 2000, I came from Las Vegas and I had covered all the big boxing matches uh, throughout the mid nineties, all of Mike Tyson's uh, United States fights, um, a good chunk, if not a majority, I'd have to go back and look of Oscar De La Hoya's career, uh, Felix Trinidad, uh, Roy Jones, uh, all those guys, mm -hmm. uh, name a big boxer from the mid nineties and, uh, Floyd Mayweather's beginning. He was from Las Vegas. I remember interviewing him in a, in a gym locker room when he was, uh, just turning pro. And so when I came to Vegas or came to Buffalo from Vegas, I was surprised. I, I thought I was going to have to give up my boxing coverage that I wasn't really going to have much to cover. And much to my surprise, when I came here, not only was it Joe Macy, but Ross Thompson had been ranked number one for almost a full calendar year. I remember him. hadn't fought for a title yet, uh, but he was, had been ranked number one in the world and hadn't really been covered because he was from Buffalo, but training in Vegas. Uh, you had Les Ralston coming up. He had a little bit of name recognition because his father was a prize fighter back in the day. And so you had these stories and Joe Macy, of course, was the biggest and he was a borderline household name in Western New York, but you'd get out into Boston back in Vegas. There were a lot of people who had heard, really heard the name, but didn't really know what the guy was about. Uh, is he legit? Uh, what weight division is this guy in again? Uh, you know, he, he hadn't hit the scene in terms of television or anything like that. So it was, it was a weird time. And I think, and I've, Joe has told me this before, and I've heard it through the grapevine from his father, Jack, is that one of their big misfortunes of their career was me moving to Buffalo at that <laughs> time, because things were taking off. And now all of a sudden you had a reporter who'd been there and done that. Now, you know, imagine the, the writers in lot, let's take it the other way around. Um, hockey coverage in Las Vegas right now is probably would probably be helped if a writer who had covered the NHL in Buffalo moved out there and all of a sudden started covering hockey in Vegas, right? Sure. Because they haven't had somebody on their staff who's covered the NHL. Uh, they're kind of learning it as they go. Uh, this will be their first trade deadline. In fact, I had, I saw on Twitter that, you know, Vegas just had a big trade that was nullified by the league on Thursday. And a friend of mine was out in Vegas watching the, the newscast, um, one of the local affiliates, and it wasn't even mentioned, uh, even though they talked about uh, the Vegas Knights. So they didn't even know about the trade deadline or the, how big of a deal it was that this trade had been executed and the league canceled it out. So, so imagine if it were the other way around. Right. And so you have a veteran boxing writer. I'd written for Ring and KO Magazine and all this stuff. In fact, I was a columnist at ESPN.com at the time, uh, like a freelance thing, long before I went to ESPN to cover football. Mm -hmm. And so you had a guy who knew how the boxing business worked. And I would routinely call the promotions out for doing it wrong, for doing it borderline illegal. And I'm not, you know, for instance, when Joe Macy fights at the University of Buffalo mm -hmm. uh, at Alumni Arena and in the promotion, it stated that the guy he was fighting, the name escapes me right now, was such and such champion. 
So I looked it up and I couldn't find that he, you know, he had been this champion maybe a couple of years back. So I called the guy uh, who is in charge of that boxing sanctioning body. And he says, no, this guy, he hasn't been our champion in a year and a half, but oh. in the promotional things there, Brian McKnight, I think was his name. Yeah. Keith McKnight. Um, Keith McKnight. Yeah. Brian McKnight's the singer. So <laughs> yeah. Keith McKnight. So he wasn't a champion um, promoting in the, uh, in press releases and things that if you, uh, that if it's not sold out, the, the fight will be blacked out because it was going to be on ESPN two, I think. Uh, but that wasn't the case. You could have watched it on TV, whether you bought a ticket or not. So it's kind of just, you know, uh, the types of things that they wouldn't be called out on by a trusting local media that accepts everything at face value. And that's again, not a knock on the local media. They just really never dealt with that. You wouldn't get away with things like that with the NFL or the NHL in Buffalo, because we're used to that or city hall or whatever. But boxing was a foreign concept and to have this guy who was fun to watch and was entertaining and drew out, drew out these crowds everybody was along for the ride and then here comes this guy who's not interested in going along for the ride that being me that being and you. so it became a problem and i became their problem so anyway I, this is my long wind now i'm just going down the, the macy <laughs> rabbit hole in my mind but but anyway i think joe macy was probably about 50 50 in Western New York. He was way bigger than he was uh, nationally or internationally. And you could say, well, yes, he got on HBO, but a huge reason, maybe the most significant reason he ended up on HBO was because they knew that if they put on a fight in Buffalo, they were going to sell tickets to it. And it was going to be an event. And that's what happened with HBO until Vegas and made his big Vegas debut against Vasily Jirov and, and his whole career changed. Now, because of who you were in your experience, and you're right, man, the local media was, was much softer on him than, than you were for, for obvious reasons. Because of that, I mean, it was, was it difficult for you to try to cover Joe because of his father, Jack, at least at the time? And didn't, when they got involved with Sugar Ray's, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard's promotional company, didn't one of those guys try to go to the news and get you fired at some point? Yeah, I, I want to say that there were a couple of times when the, I, they tried to get me fired at the Buffalo News, uh, but that was the most notable. Yeah, Bjorn Rebney, who was Sugar Ray Leonard's, he was the the brains behind Sugar Ray Leonard promotion. Sugar Ray Leonard was pretty much just there to be Sugar Ray Leonard. It was a name recognition thing. I'm guessing Bjorn Rebney went to him at some point and said, look, I want to start this promotional company. I'm going to give you a cut. We just want you to be there for to be Sugar Ray Leonard. And Sure. Why not? Um, that's how it worked out. Now, Bjorn Rebney is known as one of the bad guys in the business, not only in boxing, but now with Bellator and, and uh, mixed martial arts. Uh, just he's he's burned a lot of people along the way. He's made a lot of enemies, including the Macy's. And so one of the problems was when Joe Macy signed with Sugar Ray Leonard Promotions, I had written that I thought it was uh, that I was skeptical that it would work. Okay. Uh, with this, with this is my premise. Sugar Ray Leonard, his entire career, never had a promoter. He was a freelancer or a free agent, I should say. Every one of his fights went to the pretty much the highest bidder, whether you were Don King or Bob Arum or Cedric Kushner or whatever promoter he ever worked with. It was, all right, what are you going to do for me on this next matchup? And so he was never attached to a certain promoter. So my theory or my hypothesis was if this is a guy who thought it was best for him his entire career, never to have a promoter, 
Now all of a sudden he's going to people and saying, sign up with me. I know what to do for you. So it's, it was kind of, it was, it was a contradiction mm-hmm. and the Macy's and of course, uh, Ray Leonard's promotional company and mostly Bjorn Rebney. I don't even know if sugar Ray Leonard read the stories, but they got very upset with that. How could I say such a thing? And of course, by the end of his contract with sugar Ray Leonard, Joe Macy had to sue or was sued. I'm sorry, because he broke the contract. He wanted to get away from Sugar Ray Leonard promotions. And of course, and this is where the Macy's didn't know whether, you know, what to make of me, especially at this point, I wrote, you can't leave your contract. So I, Jack Macy was telling a lot of people, first, the guy says we shouldn't sign with Sugar Ray Leonard. And then he says we shouldn't leave him. Well, yeah, once you sign a contract, you have to honor the contract was my point. So you, you shouldn't have signed the contract to begin with. But in in my coverage of that fight at UB, and I was pointing out all of these uh, misleading things within their promotion. Mike Bellani is the PR guy at this point. Mike Bellani, the former uh, uh, Buffalo Bison's uh, president or general manager, whatever his title was there. And it was just kind of like a, you know, a, I don't want to. It was just, everything was done too slick. Everything was trying to get, trying to get away with something, trying to, this alumni arena was probably going to be full anyway, but to have to lie to say, this guy's a champion, just say who he is. And people are going to cut, they're not coming out because they think Keith McKnight is the WBF intercontinental Midwestern, you know, East of the Mississippi, uh, champion. Yeah, they're they're coming out because they want to go see Joe Macy fight at Alumni Arena, yeah. and if they're gonna, they're not going to say, "Oh, geez, if I can't watch it on ESP, ESPN two, I have to buy this ticket." So everything was just kind of done uh, like with a huckster's approach, and I thought that uh, in my mind, as I'm I covering all these things, I kept thinking to myself, you know, the people of Western New York, you know, aren't rubes mm-hmm. uh, and shouldn't be treated as such. You mentioned uh, him fighting at UB. After that, and you mentioned this too, he went on and he fought three times at the uh, HSBC Arena, whatever it was called at the time. Obviously, you covered that. To to you, it was just another fight. You've done this many times. You've covered many big fights. But to Buffalo, this was a big deal. Do you remember, like, in terms of the crowd and the fan excitement, what was that like for Buffalo? Like, what was the vibe like in the arena for those fights? Oh, I thought it was great. Uh, in fact, one of those fights, uh, I was banned from attending it, and the Buffalo News had to go to a local judge uh, to get me admitted to cover the fight. They, the, the, there was supposed to be, uh, I wasn't going to get a credential to cover the fight. Wow. And uh, if I wanted to cover the fight, I had to buy a ticket. So that's what we did. So I bought a ticket, and the Buffalo News is right next <laughs> to the arena. So it's no, so what? So right. I have to walk 30 yards to go file my story as opposed to doing it in the press area. Not, not a big punishment. And it was kind of embarrassing stunt for Sugar Ray Leonard promotions and, um, and, and probably I'm sure at Jack Macy's behest. Yeah. That sounds, Um, that sounds really personal. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, but yeah, those were electrifying fights. I can still, every time I hear the, the song thunderstruck, uh, that intro to e, to ACDC song, I can see Joe Macy coming down those steps at HSBC Arena to enter the ring. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they were fun events. And I thought they were great for Buffalo. And, you know, Joe was great for Buffalo. All the people around him who felt, obviously, that he couldn't just do it on his own, that they had to bleed uh, a promotion dry by you know saying 
misleading things or trying to trick people into getting interested in Joe, uh, I think were unnecessary. And I, I thought that Joe and, and Joe and I have, we've spoken uh, a handful of times. So let's say just in the last couple of years, I, I've seen him out. Uh, I was at a restaurant once and we had a nice chat and uh, I was at the, uh, the Buffalo boxing hall of fame dinner one time. And I was asked to say a few words and, and his brother, Tom and, and Joe and I had a kind of a moment where we buried the hatchet. And, uh, but I think that, you know, with me and it was never about Joe, it was that I thought that the people around him, um, always presented themselves as, as hucksters. And I just think that Western New York deserved better than that. Of course, like in March of 2004, he's on HBO and, and he, and he's boxing giraffe, like you mentioned before who's a former Olympic champion, and I'm sure you remember the fight well enough. Macy killed him for eight rounds. I mean, he, he was beating him handily, but then in the ninth round, he got caught, he got hurt, and got knocked down, and then he got knocked down two times in the tenth round, but he still held on to win, and then he suffered the, the brain injury that fight and got his license yanked. As a reporter, I mean, how did you feel about covering that fight? Like, did you think Macy won that fight? And after that, the whole two years, he spent two years in court trying to get his license back. I like Joe, and I know to an extent you like Joe too, but my thoughts at the time were like, come on, man, dude, you're going to end up dying in the middle of the ring. It was a tough thing to watch unfold as everything went down. So I guess what I'm asking you is, do you think Macy won that fight? And from what you remember covering everything that happened afterwards, what, what were your thoughts as he was in court time after time trying to get his license back? I, you know, it may surprise people when it comes to this. I am terrible when it comes to remembering. It has to really be outside of the, you know, outside of the realm of, of ordinary for me to remember sports things. And this includes Super Bowls that I've covered. Uh, I generally have to go with the location. You know, somebody was right. just asking me recently how many Super Bowls I've covered, and I couldn't remember, and I had to go with, okay, the one in New York, which one was that? Uh, the one in Phoenix recently, which one was that? Uh, the Superdome one where the lights went out. Okay, now which one was that? Now, other reporters remember things with encyclopedic detail. Mike Harrington is like that, uh, can remember, you know, who was on the ice. He could name, you know, uh, who was on the ice for the other team when so-and-so scored a big goal. Um, you know, I remember clearly Jason Pominville scoring that shorthanded goal in Ottawa in the playoffs. I remember things like that, right. but I remember... I remember parts of that fight. I think I had Jurov winning the fight by a point, mm -hmm. but I understood it was one of those things where, you know, a, a judging fight, you know, it's, it's all, uh, you know, it's not scientific by any means. I didn't think that Jurov got robbed. Uh, so it was a tough time for, for Joe, obviously. And I do understand a lot of people were saying, uh, to about his father saying, uh, how would you do this to your son? Well, Joe Macy is a grown man, so I'm not going to fault Jack. He's supporting his son. I don't think that he was ever pushing his son to keep fighting with a brain injury. They did have prominent doctors who did say that it was okay for him to fight with this injury, but there were also prominent doctors who said it's not okay to fight with this injury, uh, obviously, because it was a big uh, debate uh, in the sports medical community. Uh, Dr. Robert Cantu, who uh, is very uh, esteemed doctor, he was in Joe Macy's corner for these uh, uh, for this stuff. And the big 
names uh, in the NFL's uh, CTE uh, controversy that's going on. He's, uh, uh, you know, so it's not as though he's reckless in how he goes about things. You know, he thinks that, you know, the NFL has a serious problem and not just the NFL, but football in general. So uh, there's, uh, it's not as though he's some, you don't look at his record and say, well, this guy's uh, a charlatan. Uh, or a quack. Uh, so Joe Macy had his people who, who he could go to and believe in. But I think that it becomes a, kind of a bit of a confirmation bias. And that was the, the curiosity that I had is if you have a bunch of doctors who tell you it's not safe, do you just keep going around until you find the doctor who tells you it is safe? Right. So that was part of the story, but it didn't form my opinion. Again, this is a guy who wants to go out on his own terms uh, there is a debate in the medical community about whether or not he should continue his career. It's all he's known. And yes, he's a bright guy and everybody knew that he would go on and do uh, pretty much whatever he wanted in business or politics or whatever. He was, he was never going to be hurting for work. He was not going to be the stereotypical down on your luck, punch drunk boxer in his fifties. You know, he was going to have a life ahead of him, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't want to go out on somebody else's terms. And I think that in any athlete's life, that's something that um, is difficult to cope with. So I understood why he did it. And I didn't fault his father. Uh, I didn't fault his promoter, Tony Holden, at the time. Tony had big, you know, major misgivings because he had actually had a fighter die in the ring uh, on one of his promotions before. Um, He was involved with uh, Tommy Morrison. Uh, who later Tommy Morrison and Joe Macy end up fighting on the same card in West Virginia. But Tony Holden was the promoter for Tommy Morrison when his, when he was diagnosed with AIDS and had to walk away from him and say, have some difficult conversations. So this is a ramble, another rambling thing because I don't think about boxing nearly as much as I used to Pat, but um, I just, I mean, these are just all my feelings. I, I understood where, what Joe was going through, why he wanted to move forward. And, um, I was just trying to cover it from a medical slash legal standpoint, which was interesting to do. And the talking to doctors, talking to, uh, athletic commissions, talking to promoters, the sanctioning bodies, uh, you know, there was always that Mike Tyson fight. That was, that was another thing that drove me crazy. The next fight was always going to be Mike Tyson, right? Yeah. I mean, we if you remember years. back in say 2002, 2003, that was the carrot that was always dangled for the fans. Like, all right, just get us through this fight. Right. And we're going to fight the big one. We're going to fight for the title. We're going to fight Mike Tyson, but we got, we just need this one more fight and we're going to put that. And it just never came, never came. And that was the other thing that I think drove Jack Macy uh, crazy is that I could pick up Mike Tyson's trainer or his, uh, I'm sorry, his manager, Shelly Finkel, at a moment's notice and get Shelly on the phone and get a comment. And he would say, no, we're not planning on fighting Joe Macy. Uh, so that was the, one of those wink and a nod type promotional tricks that you'd get. Um, but here you had probably Joe Macy closer than ever to fighting Mike Tyson. And now Shelly Finkel saying, we don't want to fight a guy that might die in the ring. And so that was, whether that was medically accurate or not, there was a fear within the boxing community that now Joe Macy is damaged goods. And so I had to cover it from that aspect too. And so it was, uh, it was, it was fascinating to cover. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, um, I don't know. I I don't really know 
what else to add, I guess it was, um, but it, yeah, it's been buried you know, since I, since I stopped covering boxing in 2007, I really haven't thought or paid much attention to it. I'm not a boxing fan anymore. I've just lost touch with it. Once, once you start covering the NFL, you become so overwhelmed with because it is a year round sport, which is one of the beauties of the NFL, right. especially from a marketing standpoint is the Super Bowl's over, but then you're right into draft pre-draft stuff and the combine and free agency and the draft and mini camps and then training camp. It's just never ending. Right. Yeah. So once you do that, I didn't have time to pay attention to boxing to even the stars that were still left over like De La Hoya and Bernard Hopkins and uh, Shane Mosley and Winky Wright and all these guys. And as they start fading away, I can't tell you anybody. I mean, I could tell you the big, you know, Gennady Golovkin. I can repeat his name. I can tell you, you know, Canelo Alvarez. I get beyond that. I don't know really going on in boxing i just i've lost all the storylines i've lost interest i find it a lot more distasteful than i used to and i think i probably looked the other way because boxing was something that i covered and i knew all the people in it and i was good at it i thought and so i was plugged in and once i've unplugged myself i see it for the head injuries and all the things that have been there all along, this isn't anything new, but with what's going on in the NFL also, and, and to, um, to another degree, the NHL, the head injuries that are involved. I, I just, the more I, the older I get, the less I, the less I get excited about sports where you're getting hit in the head is, is a part of it. All right. So we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave boxing. We, that's more than enough boxing. You wet my whistle, so I'm good with that. Now, you covered the Sabres in the early 2000s. I don't want to talk about the Sabres right now. I'm just, I, I just can't do it on this podcast. I don't want to talk about them. But now, if my timeline's correct, you, you went on and you would spend a few years covering the Dolphins in, in Florida. And then, of course, uh, you started covering football for ESPN in 2008. Now, you lived in Florida for a few years, correct? I did from 2007 to 2006. 10 ish. Um, yeah. Late 2010. What was, what was Florida like for you? I mean, it was a different side of the state. I live in Florida now. I've spent my whole life in Buffalo and I've been in Florida now for the last about almost two years. What was Florida like for you? Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't, I worked for the Palm beach post, which mm-hmm. is in Palm beach County. And then the dolphins facility in is in Broward County. Right. And even though they're called the Miami dolphins, Miami is in Dade County. Right. So I worked for the Palm beach post covering the Miami Dolphins, and I lived in Broward County because the paper didn't want me anywhere near the paper. They wanted me to cover the Dolphins. So Mm -hmm. I lived in a totally different county. I was at the paper maybe three or four times the entire time I worked there. Um, So I lived in uh, Pompano Beach for a little while and then lived in Coral Springs. So my kids would have gone to uh, the high school that just got shot up and we stayed uh, down there. So um, it was I didn't like Florida, but not, I didn't like the humidity. It's a personal thing with me. I lived out in Vegas and loved it. I love the desert still to this day, but I had a problem with getting up in the morning to go to work, taking a shower, walking out to my car. And by the time I've turned the ignition, I need another shower. It's terrible. It is. I mean, you couldn't be more right. I, yeah, I just feel, I just always felt uncomfortable. And then there's the other part too, is uh, my wife and I, um, we didn't have any uh, family or friends down there. So when we moved, it was for the work and she had a good job down there too. 
And it was just kind of like a borderline adventure. We were going to try it. We had our son and she was pregnant with our daughter. And once down there and I got the job at ESPN, ESPN said I could live wherever I wanted. We said, let's get back to Buffalo. It's home. It's where we're comfortable. It's where everybody is. Right. And that's where we decided that we wanted to raise our family in, in Western New York, not in Florida. So my experience with Florida was great from a professional standpoint, because getting that job at the Palm Beach Post, I was immediately on the map. And the Palm Beach Post is one of the great journalistic newspapers, especially when it comes to sports. If you worked at the Palm Beach Post covering the Dolphins, your next job could be pretty much anywhere. And you could go down the list of guys who came from the Palm Beach Post um, who are now scattered all around the country doing great work. And so it put me on the map. And then, of course, I, I was there for, I think, eight months when I got the job at ESPN. So I'm covering the NFL. I go from covering the NHL to being in the NFL for eight months. And ESPN is asking me if I want to come join. And it was uh, then now all of a sudden I'm on the national platform. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I would not remove Florida or working for the Palm Beach Post from my resume. If I had to, if I had to subtract anything, uh, that would not be it because uh, it was, it was seminal to my, to my career. Did you like, when you were at ESPN, I you, should say, I'm sorry, pivotal, pivotal to my career. Seminal to my career would be when I was leaving college. When you were at ESPN, you got you covered the AFC East. You didn't cover one team. Did you like covering right. a division as more as opposed to covering being on a team beat? What did you like doing more? Well, it was grueling. And they had a saying there at ESPN.com, you had to feed the beast. And I would wake up in the morning. And before I had my coffee or brushed my teeth, my laptop was open. And I was looking to see what transpired overnight, if anything, what was in all of the major papers. Now, this is the AFC East, not mm -hmm. the AFC South, where there would be four newspapers to look at in the AFC South, right? You'd have right. the Indianapolis Star, you'd have the Jacksonville Union Tribune, uh, you'd have the Houston Chronicle, and who am I missing? You'd have the... Um, Tennessee, is it? Tennessee, yeah, the Nashville Tennessean. Well, I had four New York papers, uh, <laughs> two... Two, and if I wanted to really dig, because they're pretty competitive, maybe four Boston newspapers uh, or, you know, New England papers. You can throw uh, Providence in there. Uh, three Miami papers. And Buffalo was the only market that was covered by one newspaper. And I would also, because, you know, Rochester occasionally would have stories. And so it was, uh, I'd have to read all those newspapers every day, find out what was going on. Then I'd need to come up with my own original content. Mm -hmm. And... By the end of the day, the thing that I did before I went to bed was that's when I would shut off my laptop. It was a, as long as I was awake, I was working wow. and it was, it, it was not fun. I did not enjoy my time at ESPN. Um, I thought that the work that was done when it comes to blogging was um, superficial. Uh, it didn't last, didn't stand the test of time. I would write something and three hours later, it would be obsolete uh, one year, uh, the Pro Football Writers Association um, deadline for submitting entries for their awards uh, it was in a couple of days. So I decided, well, I'm going to go back and look at what I did the past year and see what I'm going to submit. I had nothing for the course of a year. I had nothing that I thought was worthy of submitting for an award. 
And that's when it hit me. I, I said, I, I need to do something else. And I didn't mean leave ESPN. I meant I had to carve out time on my own to write takeout features, to write things that made me, that motivated me, that I thought uh, that you could read five years from now and still get something from it. A big feature on, say, uh, Kevin Turner, for instance, the former uh, um, New England Patriots fullback who had, uh, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and it was CTE related. Um, and that was really when I decided, you know, I need to think about life after ESPN. Now, when ESPN offered me a contract, uh, a contract extension, my intention was to re-sign for one more, one more contract and then explore my opportunities. Mm-hmm. But the Buffalo News at right about that time came to me to be their spotlight, uh, main spotlight writer outside of sports, this was going to be a news job. And it was, it was, uh, too, too, had too much gravitas to pass up. It was exactly what I was looking for at that time. And I was living in Buffalo already. And so, um, that was, that was why I left ESPN. And it was, uh, one of the best things I, I ever did. One of my best decisions. So now you come back to the Buffalo news six, seven years ago. And since that time, you've written some incredibly memorable pieces. Uh, if you're familiar with Tim, right? Oh, well, here, well, hang on, Pat. Go I'm going to interrupt your question. How many? What? What do you remember that I wrote from ESPN? Nothing. I remember. You want me to be completely honest with you? I remember the coverage of teams, and here's what I, per, on a personal level, here's what I remember. There were multiple times I had a blog at the time in like 2009, 2010. You really helped me out by linking a couple of my articles on the, your AFC East morning column. And it got me a lot of reads and a lot of followers. So if I'm being selfishly honest here from your time at ESPN, that's what I personally remember most. Well, I like to be comprehensive with what, uh, with what I provided my readers at ESPN. And so I know that they're going to go check out the Buffalo news. I wanted to make sure that they saw what Pat Moran had to say. So you're welcome on that. It was, <laughs> well, it was deserved. You de- I wasn't going out of my way, but, um, but my, yeah, you, but you make my point for me. Sure. I, I didn't write anything memorable at ESPN. I had a couple of things that I would probably refer people, you know, folks to. I did a story. Uh, here's one that I was proud of. I was asked to write a story. What if LeBron James decided he wanted to switch immediately to the NFL? What would happen? <laughs> you know, what would scouts, what would GMs do? Would they, um, you know, would he be signed for how much? Would he be considered a project? You know, the whole thing. Well, how good was he? Uh, going back to his high school coaches, how did he project all of that stuff? So that was a that was an in depth story, but yeah, I, the reason I asked you that question is because I I knew you'd say nothing because there wasn't much. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why I came back to the Buffalo News. I wanted to write stories that when people read it, they said, "Wow, that was that was a that was an in depth look at something I didn't otherwise know about." And mine, and I'm sure many others, my personal favorite was the Daryl Talley story. I mean. Th- that story, it changed his life. And it painted a picture of him very few people had ever seen before. What, I mean, anyone who's a Bills fan already knows the story. What, what did the reaction that you got from the public and the media locally and nationally and just everyone in general, what, what did that reaction mean to you? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, whether it's that one or the Bjorn Nitmo story, if you sure. had to ask me the favorite story I had ever written, I think it would be one of those two. And, um, because it meant so much to the families involved 
and uh, the Bjorn Nitmo story hasn't really changed his family's life. Uh, but yeah, the tally story did change his life and his wife and his kids. Big and, time. Uh, I did not, I did not expect the outpouring of love that would turn into money. I think mm-hmm. that that was at the time, the idea of GoFundMe or, um, people just raising money online. I knew about it, but I just didn't think that one was going to lead to the other. Right. And I think that you probably automatically think that now, especially with, you know, Andy Dalton's uh, charity, getting all that money for Mm -hmm. just for him helping the bills make it into the playoffs. It's almost like it's understood that that's what's going to happen next. But at the time I knew it would be a big story with bills fans because here was Buffalo's CTE story. You'd had stories like this in Chicago with Dave Dewerson in San Diego with junior Seau. Um, in different places, uh, the uh, Kevin Turner story that I mentioned earlier, even though he was more of a fringe player, he played fullback and, you know, he was with the Eagles for a little bit and he touched on a few teams. But um, this was a Super Bowl bill, a beloved bill coming forward with his issues. And he's doing it while he's still alive, which is another right. wrinkle to it, because these other guys kill themselves. And then we say, well, how come we didn't know about it? And uh, so I knew it would resonate that this was Western New York's version of the CTE story that underscores it can happen to your favorite football players, too. It doesn't right. just happen you know, here and there to other teams. It can happen right here to the guy that you have the football card of, uh, the guy you once asked for an autograph, the guy that you cheered on Sunday, the guy who, because of, uh, because of what he wore, you had a spider band you know, ski suit or whatever. Mm. Um, you have a 56 Jersey and that part of it, I knew would be, um, would be heavy, but the, the money that changed his life and what that turned into, uh, what a blessing that was for him. And that wasn't me. That was, uh, another, you know, uh, a, a guy, uh, a guy out there read the story, felt compelled to start a, um, yeah, he started. What do you, what's the generic term? What, what, what? Huh? You, you, you set the ball in motion, though. You know what I mean? I mean, someone else picked up on it, and well, sure, but I didn't. I didn't expect him to be, you know, ha- to have uh, to get almost out of debt and to get to a point where uh, he's no longer renting his house with money loaned to him or given to him from Bruce Smith and Thurman Thomas. This sure. is uh, the fans helping him buy that house. So he you know, he's already lost one house. Uh, now he and his wife know that they're going to have a roof over their head and they're going to be able to uh, get by in life and get the help that he needs to get to it, to get him or get the urgings from fans, from his teammates, to get him to uh, go to a doctor, to convince him uh, to maybe try some uh, remedies medically, whether it be medicinal or surgical, you know, that he was too proud to accept. So, yeah, but I think that you know, the money aspect of it was, was not me. And, um, but that, and that's the thing that uh, I think is, um, was remarkable about not only the people of Western New York, but, uh, there was a lot of money came in from West Virginia because he went, he was, uh, with the Mountaineers in college. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so you had at Thanksgiving time. So the holidays are approaching and people from a couple of hard hit uh, regions of the United States, Western New York and West Virginia decided that they wanted Daryl Talley to have his month to have their money. And that was, uh, that taught me a lot about, uh, about people.
Well, you, I mean, and you showed with that, and that's what I'm kind of talking about. You showed that, you know, the power of the written word, it's not a completely dead art form. Your, your words sprung action. So that's something, you know, to be really proud of. Well, one of the, and it'll be a prized possession. And, uh, I have, uh, framed and, uh, in my home, a Daryl Talley Jersey and on it, it's inscribed, uh, to Tim, your words changed my life. Daryl Talley. That's and awesome. That's something that, um, that it'll be tough to top that in terms of any kind of award or recognition that I can receive. Uh, that's, that's the score to beat right now in the, in the, in the Graham household. <laughs> well, it's a score to beat, but let, let's turn the radio for a second now. I like listening to the Tim Graham show. It's on Wednesdays at four o'clock. How did you get into the radio business, so to speak? Well, it's something I always wanted to do. And, uh, it's something that the Buffalo news came to me, uh, to do. And so there's really no, you know, I didn't uh, wheedle my way in anywhere and, and trick anybody into giving me a show. It was, uh, you know, Sports Radio 1270, the fan, uh, is a CBS sports radio station uh, based here in Buffalo, and they offered some time to the Buffalo News, and Bucky uh, Bucky Gleason and Jerry Sullivan have a show on Mondays, and uh, I was given a show on Wednesdays, uh, both from 4 to 6 p.m., and it's uh, it's a bit of a co-op. It's uh, the Buffalo News pays me and and Jerry and, and Bucky uh, to do our shows, and then uh, 1270 pays for the producer, uh, to put us on the air. And, uh, it's a pretty good partnership, I think. And it's an outlet for us to, you know, promote our work. Uh, but I don't treat it as such. I treat it as a regular radio show. Mm -hmm. And I figure that that's going to promote or get people to want to purchase the Buffalo news or check out in my work or Jerry's or anybody else. We have Buffalo news uh, reporters who come on and it's just, uh, another, another level of exposure. And I, I try to do a, put together a, a legit two hour show uh, that's worthy of turning into a podcast uh, later that people can check out on iTunes, or you can see it on uh, the Buffalo news's Facebook page, a, a audio or a video stream of it. And uh, you know, I, something I'd like to do more someday, you know, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's, there was, uh, there was a point where I thought that, you know, I, I, retire from the Buffalo news, but seems like every meeting that we have, uh, we we're told how bad things are. So, uh, you know, it's something for me to think about. I enjoy doing it and, um, I enjoy the TV work that I've done up at uh, TSN, uh, in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I, I like branching out into some of the other stuff. How different is it interviewing people on the air live as opposed to interviewing someone for a print story? It, it's the same. It's the same for me other than you have to almost like you would for a story as you're writing the story, you, references or names to explain. I, when I'm interviewing somebody over the phone or in person, I don't need to explain that person's title right. or a little bit of background as to why I'm asking you about this former teammate or this, uh, you know, your former coach. Uh, I don't need to explain the backstory when it's just me and, and that person talking. Whereas sometimes you need, you can't, you have to clue in the audience as to some specifics, but in terms of the types of questions I ask, uh, I always try to ask them the same. I, I pride myself on my interviewing and um, I always, I'll ask the same exact type of question for a print story as I would uh, on the air. Okay. So, and sometimes I guess the other thing from a prep, you know, uh, from a technical standpoint is time constraint when you're, 
on the air for radio, you have a commercial you have to hit. Whereas if I'm talking to somebody over the phone, the interview could go an hour, which would be something that would be great to do. And the only person who really can is somebody like Howard Stern, who doesn't is not beholden to commercial breaks. Right. Whereas everybody else, whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're Stephen Colbert or, um, you know, Charlie wrote, well, used to be Charlie Rose. He's not doing too many interviewing these too much interviewing these days. Uh, or Pat Morant. Well, yeah, he podcast, I guess. Yeah, we can go on as long as you want. <laughs> that's so. the difference. That's what. I, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like right now, I'm talking to you on my podcast, and it's going to end when it ends. Whereas you're on the radio, you know, you got a uh, six and a half minutes, and you got to get to a commercial. That part of the process, right. that's got to be different to you in a in a learning experience. That's absolutely that's right, Pat. So you're you're right. So I think that the, a podcast style interview is would be more aligned with what you would uh, get out of me if I were interviewing somebody for a, a print story. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, whereas yeah, there are time constraints with radio or television. Now I, I talked about at the top. You also, like I said, cause you don't have enough things to do. You teach a journalism class at Kinesis college. How did that opportunity come about? Well, I push for that and it's all, I always like to have my, I always like just in case I always need a backup plan. That's just the way I've always been in my mm-hmm. life. Not that uh, just in case type stuff, not that I, I expect myself getting into uh, academia at any kind uh, at any time, but uh, it's something that I wanted to have experience doing. Uh, if that uh, opportunity arises uh, later on in my life, maybe after I retire uh, from uh, the Buffalo News or wherever, uh, that uh, I could work for the local university. So I wanted to have some experience doing it, and I approached uh, Canisius College. I actually have approached um, a lot of the universities here and Canisius was uh, eager. They got back to me and said, yeah, yeah, let's bring you in and talk to a couple of classes, uh, and see, you know, it's kind of like a scouting report. Let's get a little scouting report as to, uh, you know, how'd you, how you'd be able to handle a classroom situation. Uh, I guess you want to, I don't know, what are they doing? Are they judging me for charisma? Because if that's the case, then how do these other professors get their jobs? But, um, and I'm not saying that about Canisius. <laughs> I'm just saying about my experience with professors uh, right. back when I was uh, in school. Uh, and uh, they, they liked what I, what I could bring to the table. And, and they like what I can offer to their sports broadcasting. Uh, they have a sports broadcasting major. And so I teach the sports journalism class, which gives everybody a look at all the different uh, platforms that you can get employed uh, when it comes to sports journalism. Mm-hmm. So the print side of it, of course, I have experience there. I have experience with radio and, and television. Um, about the only thing I don't have experience in that I can give them, uh, you know, a deep look into would be things like play-by-play or analysis during a game type stuff. Um, but we bring in guest speakers who do that. And so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy working with people who are passionate about wanting to get into the business. Do you think it's a little bit different for students? Because, you know, I took a journalism class many years ago. I, I have no, I don't remember who my professor is. I have no freaking idea. Uh, these kids, they're obviously, if they're aiming to become journalists, they know who Tim Graham is. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's gotta be a little different for students to have a teacher like, you know, like, holy shit, you know, as Tim Graham, I, 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 most people who take a journalism class don't know who their teacher is once they leave their classroom. Everyone knows who you are in that class. It's got to be different well, for the kids sounds, to know who you are. 
that sounds great in theory, uh, but I don't think that's the case. I don't know. Well, first off, if they do have any illusions of, all right, this guy's reached so much in his career, um, I'm, I'm intimidated. Uh, they, that's, that falls away pretty quickly because nobody takes me less seriously than I do. Right. And <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I, I'm constantly reminding them if I can do it, you can do it because I took one writing class in college and we didn't even have journalism as a major at Baldwin Wallace. So, uh, I was totally unorthodox, made it up as I went just on ambition and a, and a willingness to move. And, uh, so if I, yeah, if I can do it, they can do it is what I constantly say. And I'm constant. I'm also just repeatedly telling them, look, it's really, but I was not blessed with anything in particular other than uh, just wanting to stick it out and, and keep at it. And so, um, I, I think there are a lot of kids in my class who have no idea who I am. Um, I don't, believe I don't that. think that they, well, we have a lot of students that aren't sports there's that sports broadcasting major at Canisius, but we also have students who are just journalism or communication students who are taking the class just to get a, um, a wider breadth of knowledge about journalism in general. So they want to see what this sports journalism is about. And they don't, you know, some of those students don't really know who I am. And let's, and there's also, this is college. So it's not, not everybody's from Western New York. Man, so that's... we have, let's say a, a freshman or a sophomore in class who's from Ottawa uh, or from the Bronx, uh, they don't know who I am. So it's, um, the, there are a handful that do, but, uh, in fact, I had uh, one of my students, um, ask me if I wrote this, uh, story that was on the front page of the Buffalo news. Are you the same Tim Graham? I'm like, yeah, that's me. You know, <laughs> you might not remember that you weren't paying attention the first day of class when I explained <laughs> to you what I do for a living, but yeah, that I wrote that story. If you can imagine she had, she was like, wow, I didn't realize that uh, that's what you did. And I'm like, well, all right. So nowadays, that, that makes me feel, <laughs> that makes me feel <laughs> like my message is getting through. Nowadays, or back in the day, you know, if you weren't wanting to be a writer, that's what you did. You became a great writer. But it's like nowadays, that's just part of the gig. You, if you want to be a writer and make it in today's world, it, it seems like you need to master social media and you better have a voice to be able to talk on radio or TV. Very few People who, who are like sports, especially in, at least in sports writing, that's the only thing I could speak from, but in sports writing, you better be able to get on the air and talk and you better be able to have a social media account and, and promote yourself that way or it's not going to work. I agree, Pat, but I would say that the strategy would to be would be the same. It would be become a, a great writer, become as best sure. the best writer that you can possibly be because the other stuff kind of falls in line. I, social media didn't even exist when when I went to college and I got started and all this, you just learn certain things. There, there are 10 year olds who are masters of social media. So it's not that hard. Uh, and I think that in maybe when we were younger, the opportunity to get on camera or to speak even into a microphone, to hear what your own voice sounded like, um, was, was uncommon. Whereas now kids are on YouTube all the time. My daughter, I think we, you know, we posted a couple of, you know, silly YouTube things already just because she wanted to see herself on YouTube when she was a kid playing with her little toys. My son, mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, and so, yeah, these kids see themselves and they can do pretty much whatever they want to do. So I would say that the writing part of it is still the thing that you have to work at because you're not going to. Yes, people do get have their own blogs. 
but that's uh, that's not as popular, seemingly so. I don't know the data behind it, but blogging doesn't seem nearly as popular as it was 10 or 15 years ago because right. now it's video and it's podcast. And so, so I would say become the best writer you can be because you're going to be able to teach yourself the other stuff. You just pick it up by osmosis uh, like I did. I didn't, I never had a class on how to speak on camera when I'm on television, but I'll go up to TSN in Toronto, which is a major network in a, mm -hmm. in an actual country on this planet. And, uh, and they sit me down and they, you know, we'll do something with satellite or we'll, they'll put me at a podium and I'll be talking to one of their anchors about something going on in the NFL. And I do it in one or two takes. And it's not like, you know, it was not there. Nobody had a meltdown. It was, you know, there's a producer there who clips a mic to my lapel and, you know, make sure that uh, the lighting is right. And I'm standing, my shoulders are square. And yeah, so I would just say, but, but no one's going to, but if a boss asks you to turn in a story about something or something about, or the written word, or you need to send an email or you uh, submit a pitch, you have an idea that you want to get uh, your editor, uh, convince your editor to send you somewhere to do this big story. If you can't, write the email coherently enough to right. get your editor to say, yeah, let's do it. Then you're sunk. So, um, yeah, writing is the all is, I think always going to be the hardest part. Did you embrace Twitter right away? Because I know a couple of your colleagues, Mike Harrington, John Vogel, they hated Twitter with a passion for a while before they finally, I mean, they, they, I'm sure they had to do it to some degree, but you know, they didn't like it. Did, were you the same way? Did you embrace Twitter early or did it take you a while to really understand it? You know, you need to have, Twitter. I was, I was on Twitter a lot earlier than they were. In fact, I was one of the guys who uh, was brought in to help talk John Vogel into being on Twitter. Uh, when I, I was at the Buffalo news at that time. Uh, but I started when I was at ESPN because ESPN made sure that we all Every division, every divisional blogger had a division um, account that ESPN set up. And at some point, I thought to myself, I'm going to have my own account while I'm still here at ESPN, because when I leave, I don't want to leave my Twitter followers with ESPN or whoever the next person is. And I think mm -hmm. Mike Rodak has my old Twitter feed right now. Uh, it was renamed. Uh, he took it over. Um, I think, I think that's the thing we've talked about it. I, I should, I should have that. I should know that right off the top of my head. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that he has my old Twitter account. Um, but I wanted to have my own. So I started building my you know, finger quotes brand when I was still at ESPN. And I think when tw Twitter first came out, I was like, what is this? It seems silly. Um, I'm above that. You know, this thing is beneath me. Uh, and then after a while, I saw the power of it and I thought, you know what, I, I got to get in on this. But there are some other things that I've also not done. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and that's it. I've never done Instagram. I don't have an Instagram account. Neither do I. Uh, I don't have a snap. I don't have a Snapchat account. Well, I have a Snapchat account only because the Buffalo News asked me to set one up for an assignment one time, but I haven't followed through with doing anything with it. Um, I had, I, I've never done Pinterest. I've never, I, I didn't do vine. I never got into vine. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much, and, and I'll be honest, Pat, um, I've gotten less and less interested in being on Twitter as time has gone on. I've had people come up to me recently and say, you know, you don't tweet as much as you used to. And it's just, I don't care. I'll use it as a news feed. I'll <laughs> check on my, who I follow just to see what people are talking about. Right. Well, but I, I don't feel I don't feel compelled to tweet 
as mo- nearly as much as I used to. Does that have anything to do with the fact that Twitter trolls are always coming at you? And and this is one of the things I've always loved about you is your accessibility. Like I said, I'm a nobody. You've always helped me out with anything I've asked you from day one. But and you know that and that's a good thing. But a bad thing is somebody who's got 13 Twitter followers is talking shit to you all the time, and you're going back at them. And a lot of people are like. <laughs> A lot of people are thinking, like, Tim, why is Tim bothering with this idiot who's got 13 Twitter followers tweeting him nonsense? Because I like it. <laughs> it's, well, it's fun to watch. I, I'll tell you that much. I, it, for me, it's fun to watch. There's a payoff for me. Yeah, there's a payoff for me. I enjoy it. But here's the thing, and a lot of people, some people have gotten it, but a lot of people don't, is, and they say, you're, you're an, an a-hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, you know, why are you such a jerk to people on Twitter? I don't go looking for these conversations. I only respond to people in the way that I'm approached. So if you want to ask me a question about the bills or what I think about, uh, uh, how, what type of job the Pagulas are doing or, or what have you, I'll give you an answer and I'll tell you what I think, or maybe even send a link to something I've, ri- I've written recently to say, you know, this explains it better than I can on Twitter. Um, but if you just want to, you know, make fun of me or think you're making fun of me uh, or my haircut or whatever, and then you're probably going to you're going to get what you what right. you delivered. You're going to you're asking for it. And that's where I but I generally will. I don't sit and stew about a response. Uh, if I can think of something right away that makes me laugh to myself, that's what I go for. And I'm like, all right, well, here you go. And if I if I can sit and get a good chuckle. I, I'm, I'm here to amuse myself, not to amuse anybody else. But if other people can find some enjoyment in it, then I think that that's uh, worthwhile. <laughs> All right. All right. Before I let you go, I'm starting a new tradition on this podcast. I have to ask each and every guest at the end of their interview what their favorite 80s music artists are. What music did you like to listen to in the 80s? I don't think we're going to end All up right. agreeing, by the way. Well, there, well, there, well, there's a, there's, there's a subtle difference there because what I could think of to listen to in the eighties would be different today than what I actually listened to in the eighties. Right. Okay. Well, so give me I both. will say this. No, well, I don't know if I can answer the, I, I can answer your question as you posed it right away. Okay. And it's Scorpions. Uh, the band that I've seen most in con- in concert is Scorpions. Um, I think six times it was, I'm not a huge concert goer. So some people might say I saw the Grateful Dead you know, 28 times or 35 times, or I've seen Bruce Springsteen 12 times, but I, I think it's six. Um, and they were also involved in the very first concert I went to, which was, uh, it's called the monsters of rock. And I can give you the lineup in order. It was kingdom come, which was a hot young band at the time. A lot of people were comparing to Led Zeppelin Dawkins, Metallica before Metallica got big. This was before the black album. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scorpions and then Van Halen, which would have been Sammy Hagar as uh, lead singer at the Rubber Bowl in Akron, Ohio. Uh, first concert I ever saw. And then I saw the Scorpions, I don't know, a bunch of times after that in both Ohio and in, out in Las Vegas. So they were my band. And that came to me from my brother. And my brother's four years older than me. And my town was a bit of a heavy metal town, huge ACDC town. Um, Van Halen, all those acts that you could imagine, all the ones that I just mentioned. Um, but I was just having this conversation earlier today with, with somebody else, uh, on Twitter, uh, a Twitter DM. Uh, I think that my favorite eighties band now, because they were seminal and I'm using the word correctly this time, they were seminal to my musical taste were the violent femmes because that was the first band 
that I came to like on my own. It wasn't because my brother listened to it or my football teammates listened to it or kids in my school listened to it. It was the first band that I could tell people, have you heard of the Violent Femmes? And they would say, what? And I would say, you got to check this out. And it was cool to be able to do that. And they still have remained one of my favorites to this day. So I did answer both versions of that question. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Tim, listen, you spent almost an hour talking to me. I know you're busy, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time and talking to me. I'll keep going if you want me to. No, I don't think train? I can handle any more. <laughs> okay. Nor, nor can nor can the people who haven't gotten to this point. They uh, they clicked off about forty five minutes ago. They probably clicked off five minutes into my intro, but if they came back <laughs> on for your interview, those they stayed on. So thanks again, Tim. I really appreciate your time. Anytime, Pat. I, I'm already looking forward to the next one. Pat with us. To the victor belongs the spoils. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... I'm with Tone Pucks. I'm going to skip the pleasantries because we got a lot of Tyrod Taylor news to get to from last week. It's debatable as to whether or not it's news, but, you know, it's, it was something, that's for sure. Well, I, I kind of need to apologize to you because last week you had a take on Tyrod Taylor getting $6 million bonus paid to him as a possibility, and I edited it out. And the reason why I did was because the show was running long. It was our first podcast, and I didn't want to take a chance. I wasn't sure about the cap figures, so I didn't want to take a chance of us being wrong on our first episode because we would have got murdered for it on Twitter. I know you were already wrong about how good of a show uh, This Is Us is, so you didn't want to be more wrong than that. That's so rude and hurtful. What, what's your take on Tyrod? Give me. Let's keep it brief because we got we spent too much time talking about quarterbacks, and I don't want this to be Pat with pucks talks about quarterbacks for thirty minutes each week. So, based on the report from Ian Rappaport, now now it's not just speculation. Now it's a report. What do you think that means? I think I think the word that I used uh, last week was that we would still be in for a tease with the Bills and Tyrod. And I think that's what this is. Uh, nothing more and maybe less. I think the Bills are going to gauge the trade market. Combine's coming up. And they're going to see, you know, if the, if, if anybody is going to call this bluff, you know, or, or is going to offer something that could be worth taking on a $6 million hit. And that's a a big question mark what that worth might be third fourth it's you know it's but that you know that that's going to play out that's going to play out uh probably sooner than people think i I don't think they're i don't think the bills are still in the uh in in the tyrod taylor starting quarterback game well i think regardless of what happens with tyrod whether they trade him keep him cut him one thing i disagree with you on as i've thought about it throughout the week i am convinced that the bills are going to move up in the draft somewhere high as four or five or somewhere around nine through 11, somewhere in that ballpark. I am convinced you're not, or at least you weren't last week. I was on the fence last week, but I, now I am very confident that the bill's primary goal this off season is to get one of four quarterbacks in the draft. I don't, I think the bills are in for Darnold for Rosen, maybe for uh, Baker Mayfield or even Josh Allen. 
one of those four, I am very confident at this point that the Bills are going to end up moving up and getting one of those guys. Well, you know, those reports are certainly a hell of a lot sexier than, you know, breaking news. The Bills expected to stand pat. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's going to that's going to be the buzz. A team with multiple picks and uh, no quarterback are going to create a buzz. And, and, you know, they might be creating the buzz on their own just so that they can see what it's going to take. The, the only thing and I never hated the idea of moving up and getting the quarterback. I hate the number of holes that it leaves. I, I, I hate what I'm hearing about, you know, the, the, the caliber of free agents that they're, you know, that they're probably going to move on from and hearing nothing um, to the effect of the caliber of free agents that they're looking to replace them with. If anything, you know, I'm, I'm expecting them to have very minimal offset there. Because they'll want, you know, they'll want the picks behind all this quarterback stuff and, and behind the strategy that comes with the, the multiple picks in the draft is is becoming a bit of a shell of a roster. Well, let me ask you this, because you mentioned the word holes. And like I said, we could talk quarterbacks forever. Let's wait to the draft or at least free agency and see how things start to play out. But let's talk about some of these holes, because the Bills quarterback. It's just one of them. The Bills have a lot of holes that they're going to have to fill. And let's start with Preston Brown. What do you think the Bills do at linebacker with Preston Brown? Do you think he's back? That's a good name to, to, to bring up, one that's not being brought up enough. Uh, as, you know, E.J. Gaines seems to be getting the, you know, the bulk of the, uh, of the attention. But Brown is a very interesting piece for this team because, you know, a lot was made during the course of the season as to just how – important he was to getting them in the right in the right defenses now I know it was a watered down or, or a much simpler version of Rex's you know not that they were similar defenses but this was a, a, a much simpler one to get guys into and out of than Rex's but it's it's still not easy and this is a this is a kid now that's done it for uh you know a few different guys and this particular uh, group seems to have pulled something out of him in terms of, you know, his leadership that the others, um, either because of, you know, just how they, you know, the buttons uh, that they pushed with Brown or the defenses that they, you know, tried to get him to learn and, and ultimately execute, you know, were just too much. So it's a good marriage right now between this defense and Preston Brown but it's coming at a really bad time. It's coming at it. His free agency is coming at a time right now that, you know, he is probably worth more to some other team that doesn't need the speed and the sideline to sideline element that McDermott's defenses do. And I think the bills are going to end up coming in a little lighter than, than Browns uh, can do elsewhere. And, and if his agent's doing his job, he's going to tell him that. Well, if recent history is any indication, Bill's linebackers tend to get overpaid in free agency. Brandon got a huge, I wish we had Brandon right now, but you know he got a big deal in Philly. Zach Brown, I think he went to Washington. So recent history suggests that Bill's linebackers go elsewhere to get paid. I'm kind of on the fence with Preston Brown. I agree with everything you said, and he does have leadership qualities, and he racks up. He's a tackling machine, but you know he reminds me of Paul Pazuzzi in a way. He racks up tackles. 
But when does he make impact plays? I don't believe, I'd have to look at the stats, but I don't think he had an interception or forced fumble or, or, I don't know about fumbles, but he didn't have an interception and he didn't have a sack the entire season. I feel like you need more quality from that in a middle linebacker before you go out and, and you pay him a significant amount of money. But here's the problem too. There's not a lot of quality free agents uh, up that are upgrades, that are surefire upgrades out there in the market. They got to re-sign somebody. They, they can't just fill every single hole by the draft. This could be a position, I think, where the Bills do pony up, maybe a little more than we thought to keep them. Yeah, and, and I, I think I'd be on board with it if, if they did. But this is where this is where McDermott's got to be the head coach now as opposed to, you know, just being the defensive coordinator in Carolina. Now he's got to say, you know, I, I might not be able to get my star pupil in, in Luke Keekley. I may have to just be above average at linebacker or at middle linebacker. I, my, my speed there might not be what, um, what I want it to be, but I've got good speed in Matt Milano, or I've got good speed at safety to compensate for that. So, you know, this is where, this is where being the big boss, you know, comes into focus. And, you know, everybody says when they, when they talk about why the bills would move on from Preston Brown, because he's not in the mold of, you know, Dermot's vision, McDermott's vision and McDermott's vision. The mold is Luke Keekley. Well, my God, I mean, Luke Keekley is, is an absolute star in this league, right? you know, and yeah, maybe, maybe you can identify someone in the draft that might, uh, that might be the better fit, but you've also spent a year teaching a, a pretty talented guy who's about to come into his prime, uh, how to play the position the way you want him to, how to call the calls, the way you want him to. He lost some weight, got a little quicker. Does he have more to uh, to offer in that regard? Can, can, his, can he still play um, in his current frame if he loses a, a few more pounds and gets even quicker than he was this past year? Those probably will be the determining factors, and they're things that we would just be guessing at, you know, that guys like, uh, you know, nutritionists and all whoever else these these teams employ are going to be in on this decision because they they want more speed there i think that's evident now you mentioned ej Gaines as well earlier speculation about a month ago or so centered around him getting nine nine million or more in free agency and in that case i think it's everyone knows bye-bye you're not coming back to buffalo however i saw earlier this weekend on i believe it was over the cap on twitter that they project Gaines for getting a two or three year deal Roughly six to six and a half million. That's a couple million dollar difference. Do you think if he comes in at six and a half million, is that a price the Bills want to pay? I think it's a, a price that the Bills would at least consider as opposed to what early speculation was. I don't think they would even contemplate, you know, an eight or nine million dollar price tag. But here's the thing with anything around six or higher. And I'll pose it as a question for you. What, where do you think EJ Gaines ranks in the Bills' starting secondary? He is the fourth best of four starters in the secondary. But here's the thing, and I go back to what I was saying earlier. There's just so many holes on this team right now. So to have EJ Gaines back to me gives me peace of mind. The starting secondary set. 
there's so many positions on this team right now that you got to worry about whether it's a trade, a free agent, or a high draft pick to plug holes. To me, you get EJ Gaines back, not at $9 million, but six, six and a half. I mean, yeah, he was hurt, and he's been hurt, and that's his biggest issue is that he's injury prone. There's no denying that. But they were better when he was in the lineup. I, I think he was the Bills were something like 8-3 and three or something when he played this year. But anyway, you get EJ Gaines back at a, even a semi-reasonable price. That's a headache that's gone. The secondary is set. You go, you maybe you bring back Sharice Wright or Leonard Johnson. They're both free agents. Lower to, you know, those could be a nickel guy or a dime, whatever. But I like the peace of mind of knowing if you can resign EJ Gaines before free agency even starts, that's your secondary right there. And that's at least that's one position on this team that is completely locked down. I don't disagree with any of that. And I am in the corner of wanting EJ Gaines back. But my gut tells me that they have a vision for how to structure the salaries of their football team. And even though I, I don't think it would cause any animosity amongst the, uh, you know, the guys in the secondary, I think they would understand that, hey, you know, he just came up at a time and, and that's just being opportunistic and everyone's time will come. I still think Brandon Bean will just ultimately fall on I'm not paying my fourth best member of the secondary the most amount of money. It's just not the economic strategy that he is looking to implement. That's why I think they walk. I, w- I would like for him to be back at a reasonable price only because it just gives me the peace of mind there. I do agree, though, that he's gone. I think he's going to get overpaid somewhere. I'm not even spending a lot of time thinking about him at this point, to be honest with you. One more Bills thing before we move on to other stuff. ESPN's Jeremy Fowler reported over the weekend that the Bills wanted to trade last year, 2017, for uh, Pittsburgh Steelers receiver Martavis Bryant. Now, that kid is an enigma with some mad talent, and he's entering the last year of his contract. If that's your prove-it year before you become a free agent, do you think that this is something that maybe the Bills are going to revisit again this offseason and if so, a guy like that, I mean, you have to imagine he could potentially be a tremendous help to this offense. He's, he, he's a baller, that's for sure. Um, I, I guess I would uh, want to know the timeline of that interest. You know, was it, uh, was it post-Doug Whaley or, or, or while he was still around? That would be a surprise if this particular group had an interest in him. You know, I, I look at the Peters, the, the Marcus Peters trade this past week of of McDermott's. Big trade. What did I say? I said it's a big oh, trade. big trade. Yeah, absolutely. What the fuck do you think I said? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe I do need a microphone. <laughs> I think you do need a microphone. Go on, proceed. He was traded away somewhat controversially by... McDermott's mentor and I think I think McDermott works in the same in, in the same sort of way interestingly it was the Rams and, and Sean McVay a, a, a younger kind of more in touch with the the, the modern day athlete uh, type of coach who took on both Reed's headache most recently and last year McDermott's headache if you want to call him that and I know he wasn't but you know in in Sammy Watkins so you know, the, 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 the Bryant rumor bears 
watching, uh, you know, if it uh, if it comes back up in any other capacity. But it'll be interesting what the Bills do at receiver because it all comes down to whether or not they're looking to extend Benjamin. You know, Benjamin's on that last year. So what kind of contract are they looking to add? What kind of player uh, and what kind of contract are they looking to add to go with a second-year rookie in, in Zay and a guy at the end of his rookie contract in uh, in Calvin Benjamin. I, I see it as, uh, you know, more of like a, a three-year guy, like a Richardson, Paul Richardson, I think that's his name, from Seattle. And that way they could, you know, they could go either way. Uh, it doesn't affect the uh, the Benjamin decision. They don't feel beholden to extending him, you know, because the cupboards are bare uh, if he happens to have a shitty season, which, you know, may go a long way to, to figure out how successful the Bills are going to be this year with how successful of a season Calvin Benjamin has. One more NFL thing, then we'll move on from football for now. There's rumors that the Jets are all in on Kirk Cousins. We talked about him last week. He's not going to Buffalo. It, it would be, well, never say never. It would be a stunner if he ended up signing with the Bills. But now the rumors are the Jets are all in on him. Give me a prediction where does Kirk Cousins end up? Where did your gut tell you? I'll go with New York just because of the way he kind of, you know, jumped in front of the camera that one time. He's got a brashness to him that uh, that makes me feel like, um, you know, he may embrace the limelight a little bit. So I'll go. I'll go with New York there. If they seem to want to plant a plant a seed, that they're 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 not going to be outbid, or somebody's planting that seed. So. Let it be them. I, he doesn't scare me. Going to New York doesn't make me uh, say, oh, man, you know, the Jets uh, become an instant, uh, you know, two loss kind of thing for, you know, until we can until we can match him. You know, he's he's Tannehilly. We're all a little Tannehilly. If I don't bring him up, I know you're going to anyway, so I may as well be the one to do it. We're taping this Sunday evening, early evening. As of right now, this moment, Evander Kane is still on the Sabres. By the time people listen to this in the morning, he probably will be gone. Or by the afternoon, he's gone or for sure. So where is Evander Kane going in your mind? And by the way, I hate this team. You know it. I don't even want to talk about them. But you're going to bring it up if I don't. See, I sound like an idiot talking about them right now. I don't watch them. I haven't watched them in four months. And I'm probably not going to watch them till next year. But anyway, for the people who do like the Sabres, who are listening, what do you think is going to happen with Evander Kane? It's, you know, it's, it's 2 nothing Buffalo in the first intermission right now. I, I think we got to regroup and look and see what sort of run we can go on and, and uh, what we might be able to accomplish between now and the end of the season. Um, that's terrible. Are you yeah, kidding me? Is that yes, a joke? I, I don't am. even know. I'm, I'm assuming that you're joking. I have not watched one full period of Buffalo Sabres hockey since this, December 4th. And Mike Harrington and John Vogel from the Buffalo News, their Twitter account is how I keep up with the Sabres. It's not that they're not good. It's just I feel robbed and ripped off for supporting them the way I have the past couple of years because they just look like a team to me that's just going through the motions and doesn't even care, and I just can't be on board with that. Anyway, another rant for another day. Let's get back for a third time to Kane. You tell me, in your mind, what are they going to get for Kane, and when people listen to this tomorrow, 
or Tuesday. Where do you think he ends up? I think they get. Uh, I think he fetches slightly less than uh, than Rick Nash. For for Kane um, to even be back in the conversation of a similar haul as Nash got, I'm thrilled to to think that it could even be comparable. Uh, I am of the opinion that GMs around the league are remembering uh, the Evander Kane of old. You've got a, uh, a you've got a team right now that you're responsible for. You've got a dressing room that's counting on you to add parts that are going to, um, you know, that are going to help your run. You know, these guys in hockey, they're always talking about the room, the room, the room. You know, Evander Kane, for as good as he can be in front of a camera, he is polished. He says the right things. He does, uh, you know, charities and stuff like that. And, and everybody, you know, locally that that wants to take his back and be supportive of the things, you know, that may have been distorted in the past will point out all of these things that he's doing in the community and stuff like that. But Evander Kane has still proven to be, all right, someone that has trouble getting along with others, okay? And I think that hurt his trade value this year. No matter how short-term the stint may have been, the one thing you don't want in your locker room as GM is someone who's going to disrupt it, no matter what he's going to add. Because they'll they'll tell you around this time, whatever he's adding is not going to be worth what's happening in the room. There are some GMs that that I think, uh, you know, cooled on their inquiry or just didn't make one of Kane because of it. So the fact that that he can get anything close to Rick Nash right now makes me happy. And I guess the teams they're talking about are Calgary and, and Philadelphia. So I'll pick one of those, but you know, I, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I, 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 I just want him gone. I want this part to be over. And I think that he, while, you know, not necessarily at the center of it. Okay. If, if you look at Kane's history and you, and, and you hear what people are saying about the, you know, the, the dressing room and the lack of respect for, uh, you know, for leaders in the room and stuff like that. You look at how Falk wanted to kill him at a practice a few weeks ago. George has had a sw- stick swinging incident with with him. Murray uh, M- Murray did not do him himself any favors there, and uh, I, I'm just ready to turn that page, uh, regardless of uh, of of the return, which should at least uh, offer some glimmer of hope. You know, in futures. We'll talk more Sabres next week because, again, if I don't, you're going to. So a couple quick things before we uh, before we finish. Listen, <laughs> I forgot about this. One of my listeners said that you sound like Artie Lang. Do you consider that a compliment or an insult? Artie Lang, like, like uh, when he's a, the hammered mess or when he is somewhat under control. Um, I like Artie Lang, I think. <laughs> You know, I actually have more in common with Artie Lang than uh, uh, than you know. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll go compliment there. I'm I'm pretty good with it. You know, he's an excitable dude. has a little has a lot of fun on the uh, on the air, which I uh, I try to have with you as well. So, yeah, I'll go compliment. Last question: Tomorrow night, or actually tonight, when you're listening to this, season 14 premiere of The Voice, featuring Kelly Clarkson joining the panel. Are you excited for this? Huh. <laughs> 
televised karaoke, man. It's it, it it is it is mind-boggling to me that televised karaoke has become the rage that it has become. Every one of those shows is a joke, and um, I'm sure you love them. Well, you're a fucking saucy prick. You know that? <laughs> All right, listen. They're terrible. I'm done talking to you this week. I'm done talking this week. You better be ready to talk Oscars next taping next Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm sure. I'm sure your your uh, your taste in those is equally terrible. <laughs> All right. We'll talk again soon. Terrible tweets. Tell me, I did not just see that. Oh yeah, I did just see that. So as we talked about earlier, there's a good chance that the Buffalo Bills are going to end up paying Tyrod Taylor $6 million bonus, which probably means unless they trade him that he's going to end up coming back in 2018. That's not going to sit well with a lot of Bills fans and none so more than Bills fan one. Well, that's his Twitter name anyway, with the handle at Adam Query too. I guess for Adam... The apocalypse is happening because Tyrod Taylor coming back means Brandon Bean is the worst general manager in the history of the Buffalo Bills, if not the NFL. Here's a couple tweets of his, and mind you, I'm only going to read a couple. I could probably sit here for an hour and a half and read off all the nonsense he tweeted. We're not going to succeed till we get a GM who actually cares. I have a problem with a GM who doesn't care about his fans. Even if we draft a QB, it's probably just Lamar. Yay. (laughs) Adam must have been listening to Bill Polian. Here's the two best. All Bean has done is deliver false hope just like Whaley. Seriously? Actually, here's, here's the best. He said from day one, he wants to get us our franchise QB. I would have taken Alex Smith as a bridge to a rookie, but the cheapskate won't spend any money. What's next? We waste our number ones on a Lowey. That's how he spelled it. Lowey, L-O-W-A-Y. Lowey center or a guard. Yay. Way to get excited. <laughs> First of all, how, if nothing else, how is Brandon Bean a cheapskate by bringing Tyrod Taylor? You do know that Tyrod's cap number for 2018, if we keep him, is around $18 million. Cheapskate? Listen, Bills fan one. Buffalo just ended a 17-year playoff drought. Even if Tyrod does come back next year, he's not the future. Do you think having Tyrod Taylor on the roster is going to exclude the Bills from moving up in the draft to get a guy? If they like a quarterback, I can promise you, they are going to do what they can to go up and get them. They're not going to sit and wait around at 21 or 22 for a quarterback if they really like him because they already have Tyrod Taylor. There's worse things that could happen than Tyrod being back for one more year. But regardless of how you feel about him, how does that make Brandon Bean a terrible general manager that 
doesn't care about the fans. That baffles me. And by the way, Bean wasn't here last year. It was pretty much Sean McDermott pulling the strings on the draft. But how could you not have confidence in this organization right now? They did an incredible job with the draft last year. Tredavious White, Deion Dawkins, Matt Milano, three really good starters with big futures. Don't don't discount Zay Jones quite yet either. He's still got plenty of potential. What the fuck, dude? What's the matter with you? Are you a fan? If you're not a fan, I totally get these tweets. But you say you're a Bills fan and you are tweeting nonsense. You would think this team was fucking 4-12 last year. Tyrod may be back. He may not. But that's not going to affect the Bills' quarterback evaluation for the future. Terrible, terrible tweets. You are such a loser. Loser! You're a loser! Moranalytics LVP. Man, it pains me to do this. Because Bill Polian was the architect of the Buffalo Bills Super Bowl years. Polian hired Marv Levy. He drafted guys like Andre Reed, Thurman Thomas, House Ballard, Nate Odoms, Don Beebe. Non-first rounders, guys who were building blocks towards the great Bills teams. He traded for Cornelius Bennett. He plucked Steve Tasker off waivers. He signed James Lofton when everyone thought he was washed. I could go on for days. Polian built those Bills teams brick by brick. There's no, zero, no way the Bills win four straight AFC championships without Bill Polian. Anyone who thinks otherwise doesn't know shit about football. Nothing. So being the Buffalo guy I am, this hurts. Bill Polian has lost his goddamn mind. I saw on Twitter, I think it was Twitter, someone say Bill Polian's legacy is not drafting Ryan Leaf over Peyton Manning. What a fucking idiot statement. Go back and listen to what I just said. He built a Super Bowl team in the Buffalo Bills. He took the Jacksonville Jaguars in just their second year of existence all the way to the AFC Championship game in 1996. He won a Super Bowl as GM of the Indianapolis Colts. The guy is a legendary GM and he's a Hall of Famer. Don't say his legacy is not drafting Ryan Leaf. Come on, man. It's a shame that a younger generation pretty much can only identify with Polian as this delusional, deranged ESPN football analyst we hear all the time. Sadly, though, and I mean, I got to be honest, it's a distinction he's earning because Bill Polian says some of the dumbest shit I've ever heard when it comes to his evaluation of quarterbacks. Despite winning a Heisman Trophy and very possibly being a first round pick, Polian thinks Lamar Jackson shouldn't be a quarterback. He projects him as a wide receiver, citing how elusive he is and his penchant to take off running could be a liability as a quarterback. Even worse, he calls him short and slight. Like, short? 
fucking the dude is six foot three, man. How are you six foot three and considered short? What? This is the same guy that also said last year before the draft that AJ McCarron was better than any rookie in the class. And that includes Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. Going back a few years before that, in 2014, Pullian said the Cleveland Browns owed it to their fans to draft Johnny Manziel fourth overall, and he called him a magical player. By the way, the same Johnny Manziel that's three inches shorter than Lamar Jackson. The worst, though, was recently on ESPN. Pullian said the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles shouldn't even listen to trade offers for Nick Foles unless those offers contain two number ones and two number two picks. What? (laughs) Nick Foles was amazing last year after Carson Wentz went down. He led his team to the Super Bowl. His value is definitely through the roof, but he's going into the last year of his contract and he's not even going to start next year unless Wentz suffers setbacks in his rehab. That's the only way he even sees the field. Two firsts and and two seconds? This fucking dude ain't Aaron Rodgers. If I'm the Bills or another team, sure, I might offer a second for Nick Foles. I might offer a two with some other things, another mid-round pick maybe. But uh, two firsts and two seconds? Get the fuck out of here. Go fishing, Bill. Sail around the world. Take up golf. Do something. Enjoy being one of the greatest general managers ever been a part of the NFL. Stop ruining your legacy saying stupid shit. Moranolytics MVP. You the real MVP. Black Panther is dominating the pop culture world right now like it were the 85 Chicago Bears. The latest Marvel Comics superhero film is destroying the competition at the box office, number one by more than five times the top flicks trailing it, Game Night, Peter Rabbit, and Annihilation. Black Panther's four-day opening weekend gross of $242.1 million in the United States was the second highest of all time behind only Star Wars The Force Awakens in 2015. The soundtrack is equally dominant right now musically on Billboard debuting at number one on the Billboard Top 200 with 154,000 equivalent albums earned to knock off Justin Timberlake's Man of the Woods from the top spot after just one week. It's the most units earned in a week for a movie soundtrack since Suicide Squad about a year and a half ago. From that Black Panther soundtrack, a ridiculous eight, eight of the album's 14 tracks are already on the Billboard Hot 100. Now, I'm not going to talk about any of those tracks because, frankly, I ain't never heard of any of them. <laughs> but props to Black Panther for setting the bar so high for 2018. I'm looking forward to seeing it and talking about it right here. All right, that's the pod for today. Thanks again to Tim Graham for coming on and talking shop. Of course, thanks to Tone Pucks as well. Coming up next week, I have the author of Brat Pack America. A love letter to 80s teen movies. Kevin Smokler joins the pod, and I'm pumped to talk movies and all kinds of 80s stuff with him. I'll also be reviewing the Oscars. Maybe. Make sure you guys subscribe at Apple Podcasts 
or wherever future award-winning podcasts are heard. And follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you guys soon.